Help us, God, to be fully attentive to you. As our hearts and minds and spirits have been moved through the choir's singing and through the lyrics and through what we sang earlier with the band, what we've uh, said through Liz in prayer and agreed with you and sought you. In the words of children in Gladys, help us to be particularly attentive to your spirit, to your heart, to your way, through your word. Give us ears that are good to hear, eyes that are receptive, can see, plant within us things that bring you glory and bring us joy. We pray and ask in the name of Jesus, amen. So each of the last two Sunday mornings we've started with a question and we're going to do the same this morning. We're going to start with a question this morning's question is, what is life? The Oxford Dictionary describes life as the condition that distinguishes animals and plants from inorganic matter. Say inorganic matter. Including the capacity for growth, reproduction, functional activity, and continual change preceding death. And while it's true that we probably all know someone who at moments, according to this definition, doesn't qualify to be described as alive, let's go ahead and give everyone the benefit of the doubt this morning, and especially the people around us, so that we can focus on what the scriptures say about life, or another kind of life beyond mere biology. And the type of life that's referred to in the scriptures as eternal life, or abundant life, or true life, or sometimes simply life with a lowercase l, but with a capital L as well. The sort of life that is highly regarded by all that is sought after, it is in quantity and quality what all people want. We will call this life with a capital L. And this is what we read about this morning in the scriptures. Reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. This is a familiar passage. Listen closely. This is the word of God. On one occasion, an expert in the law, a Jewish lawyer, a lawyer of the Old Testament, stood up to test Jesus. Not necessarily a bad thing. This is what they did. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit or to receive or to experience eternal life or life with a capital L? And Jesus, acknowledging that the pursuit of or hunger for eternal life is good and is worthwhile and is important, responds, what is written in the law? Jesus trusts the law. The Old Testament books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How do you read it? The expert in the law answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, from the book of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself, which may indicate, as he says these things, that the primacy or the supremacy of these two Old Testament commandments may not have been original to Jesus, but Jesus certainly affirms such. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. 
And there's that word life again. Do this and you will have that life that you're interested in and that you hunger for. And we see that not only does Jesus affirm the lawyer's answer, and in so doing, Jesus also affirms the lawyer, but Jesus also tells the man that knowing the answer is not enough if he wants to have this life. Being smart, being wise, being educated, being a good student, knowing the right answers is not what it's all about, or at a minimum, does not get a person that life with a capital L. But instead, Jesus adds, do this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbors yourself. Do this, and you will have life. And this is really an important distinction for Jesus, an important caveat, even an asterisk. It's not enough to know the answer, but to do it, to embrace it, to appropriate it, to walk in it. But the teacher of the law, verse 29, wanted to justify himself. He wanted to prove himself right. And he likely heard Jesus reply as not specific enough or not clear enough. Thus he asks, what is the scope of this call to love one's neighbors? Which people are my neighbors? And have I done enough to satisfy your direction, your instruction, your response, your command, Jesus? But the teacher of the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And it's thought that the lawyer was trying to do what lawyers do, and there's nothing wrong with that. To parse Jesus' words and to limit the scope of Jesus' words or Jesus' definition of neighbor so that the lawyer could say that he had fulfilled the command. The lawyer's question was an attempt to create a distinction, arguing that some people are neighbors and others are not, and that one's responsibility is only to love maybe a narrower definition of neighbors that included maybe only God's people or the Jews. To which Jesus responds with a little story that we've all heard before that maybe he made up on the spot. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the, on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The litany of verbs here is incredible. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. And the point of Jesus' story presumably, or we think up to this point, is to answer the lawyer's questions, who is my neighbor? 
And this is where, because we're so familiar with the story, we may miss some of the things that are going on in the passage, in the text, in the interactions, and in the words of Jesus. We think, and maybe most of us have always thought, that the moral of Jesus' story is that we should stop and help people in need. That all people should help anyone that they come across who is in danger or who is hurting or in need. And hence the commonly understood and used term, Good Samaritan. But there's much more to what's going on in the text and even going on in Jesus' little story than just that. The 17 miles of road between Jerusalem and Jericho were a real place and a dangerous place. And along that road, there were many rocky crags and caves that were prime territory for thieves and robbers and hoodlums to hide in and out of which to jump and surprise people and mug people, beat them, steal from them, rob them, and as Jesus says, leave them half dead on the side of the road helpless travelers. And that's what happened one day, Jesus said. And as that stripped, beaten, and robbed man was lying on the side of the road, bleeding and half dead, a person of the highest order in Jewish society came along, a priest. And that priest, seeing the beat-up man along the road, but with no one else around looking at him or watching what was going on, veered, just veered. It wasn't a hard right turn and then a cut back. He just veered to the other side of the road because no one was looking and he kept on walking. He may have been in a hurry. He may have had an appointment. He may have had priestly duties to carry out. He may have wanted to not defile himself according to the law, the Jewish law, the Old Testament, by interacting with someone who was bleeding and thus cause himself to be ceremonially unclean for a while for the rest of that day and so not be able to carry out the duties that God had called him to do as a priest. And so he scooted along on the opposite side of the road. And then similarly, along came a Levite, which was someone who was born into the Hebrew or the Jewish tribe of Levi, a tribe that had been assigned to be helpers to the priests. They were right in line alongside of the priests. They too had religious duties and responsibilities. And he too thought, surely someone will come along shortly after me. This is a busy road. Someone who's better qualified, who's been trained in first aid or as a first responder. Someone who's not as busy as me. Someone who doesn't have the religious baggage or complexities that I carry will be along shortly. And then someone else did come along. A Samaritan. Samaritans were descendants of a mixed race people and race and purity of race was very important to the Jewish people. But the Samaritans had become this mixed race of people after the Assyrians conquered Israel, the northern part of God's people. In the year 722, the Assyrians came down and this area between Galilee in the north and Judah in the south kind of became a no man's land where these mixed race people, the Samaritans, ended up occupying, living, habitating. 
And they didn't believe everything the Jews believed. They believed they could worship their own way, on their own terms. They were against the rebuilding back in Nehemiah's time of the temple in Jerusalem. They had their own mountain, Gerizim, on which they worshipped God as they knew God. And so they were despised by the Jews. They always had been with this acrimonious prejudice. And so when Jesus makes a Samaritan, the hero of his story, the teacher of the law must have been scandalized and shocked and abhorred and offended, shattering or seeking to shatter the lawyer's categories of who is good, of who can be good, of what good looks like, and to whom life and eternal life is available and what all of that looks like. Are you with me on this? In another world. Just then an American, let's call him an American citizen, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what's written in the Bible? What do you read there? The American answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer, now do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the American asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, late one evening on the ninth floor hallway of a mid-range price hotel in Las Vegas, a woman sat crying with tears in her eyes, bruises on her face, her hair disheveled, her dress torn in multiple places, her arms wrapped around herself. Seeking to comfort herself in her grief, in her pain, in her anxiety, in her fear, and in her aloneness. And along came a Baptist minister out of the elevator after a wonderful but late pastor's conference down the hall without stopping because it was late, and he had an early flight to catch the next morning. And then five minutes later, out of the elevator came a Presbyterian elder in Las Vegas for business and needing to finish some work for a meeting with clients early in the morning, almost stepping over the woman to get to his room down the hall. And then out of the elevator came a young Muslim man of Middle Eastern descent who walked with a certain flair, whose eye shadow and blue highlights helped hide the fact that he wasn't even here in the country illegally. And he stopped in his tracks and he got down on his knees and he gave the woman his coat and he gave the woman his room. And he got another room for himself later and he cleaned her wounds himself and he ordered room service along the way and he bought a gift card for her downstairs to the large clothing store, elegant clothing store in the lobby of this hotel. And he told the concierge to put on his credit card her entire tab for as long as she stayed in the hotel. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the woman? Part of whose life had seemingly been taken from her. 
And the American said, the one who showed her mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Are you with me on this? But there is more. Luke continues, Jesus continues, Jesus asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Almost reluctantly, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And I don't know if you caught that. Jesus asked, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor? And the lawyer says, the one who had mercy on him. Which is the right answer, of course. But which also, it seems, reveals his own prejudice and even disdain because he cannot say, because he will not say what? The Samaritan. He cannot get those words or sounds over his lips. But instead says, circumspectly, the one who had mercy on him. As if he cannot bear to acknowledge that in his own expertise in the law, in his own knowing the law, and in his keeping the law as he understood it in ways that worked for him, that such a man, a Samaritan, or a Muslim, or a gay person, or an immigrant, or an illegal immigrant, could somehow inherit life, could do or be about what leads to or coincides with or is a part of inheriting eternal life, when the obviously religious and righteous people were not. And so Jesus turns the table on the expert in the law and on the religiously righteous and in some ways also on us. Sort of. But he also invites us into something. He invites us into something more grand, better. But first, one other thing. I don't know if you noticed this twist. The teacher of the law wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, the lawyer wants to know who he has to love and who he doesn't have to love. Who is my neighbor? But in the end, Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Who was a neighbor? Which of these three was a neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The lawyer wants to know who is his neighbor. In other words, who he must selflessly serve with that other person's good in mind. And Jesus poses to him a question, the answer to which is the one who showed you mercy. And the fact that 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 person is in Jesus' story was surprisingly a Samaritan is part of the hook of the interaction. Who is my neighbor? The one who shows mercy. Are you following this? Who is my neighbor, the one who shows mercy? Not the one who's beat up and dead on the side of the road, but the one who shows mercy. The one who has shown you mercy. 
And now we think about that for a moment. Who has shown you mercy? Who has cared for you over the course of your life or recently or today tenderly or generously? Who has given to you, blessed you, walked with you in a time of need? Jesus first broadens who we are called to consider as our neighbors to basically include every person one could imagine. The teacher of the law had most likely been working with a fairly narrow definition of neighbor, a definition that included his immediate family, maybe his extended family, maybe the people who lived next door, probably all Jewish people. And Jesus radically expands that circle. But Jesus also indirectly but clearly indicates that one's neighbor is or includes that one who crosses the road for you. The one who has come to you. The one who has given themselves for you, regardless of who they are, what they're like, how they are. Henry Nouwen once wrote, my neighbor is the one who crosses the road for me. My neighbor is the one who crosses the road for me. The first sense of this passage and this story and this interaction between Jesus and the lawyer of religion and the sense that's most simple and most familiar to us is that one's neighbor is anyone who is vulnerable. One's neighbor is anyone who's vulnerable. A second sense of this passage is that one's neighbor is the person who is least like oneself, who is as different as he or she might be, and even offensively, threateningly, demographically, culturally, or categorically different. Such a person is one's neighbor by the fact, the very fact that he or she also has been made in God's image. The first sense is that one's neighbor is the person who is vulnerable and in need. The second sense is one na one's neighbor is the person who is least like me. The third sense of this passage is the assertion and the reality that even people who are different than us, including people who may have looked, that we may have looked down on or even despised and rejected, to use Isaiah's words, maybe because they adhere to a lesser religion or don't hold to our worldview, are still capable of doing good, are still capable of caring for others, even strangers, tenderly, are still capable of expressing love and of demonstrating mercy, we can make, I don't, know if you've, I don't know if you can do this. Maybe it's just me. We can make in our minds into monsters, into villains, into inferior human beings, people who are categorically different than ourselves, thinking, coming to believe that that person certainly isn't the kind of good, righteous, religious person who cares tenderly for other people, who bandages their wounds when they're bleeding. And yet we may not acknowledge and not give to them the dignity of seeing in them a heart or even the desire to do good because we wrongly imagine who they are and they are a threat to our belief structure. Have you ever done that? 
You know that God calls us to love and to do good for a certain people. And you are willing to acknowledge that you will do certain good for certain people, but it's a little bit harder to acknowledge that that other different person is also able and maybe even willing and maybe even eager to pull off on the side of the road and do the good that we're not willing to do. That's the third sense of this passage. And then the fourth sense of this passage and of Jesus' message here again, I think to our surprise, is that one's neighbor is also the person who provides for our needs, the one who takes care of us. And this is where things begin to get really complicated and mind-twisting. It raises an interesting and somewhat uncomfortable question. Who has been and who is our neighbor because they have cared for us? And this is uncomfortable because many of us spend so much of our time and energy and money trying to be invulnerable. Trying to need as little as possible from those around us. Perhaps it's a fear of being a burden or a concern about owing others, or that we are just afraid of being vulnerable. Because if we show our need, that that need may not be met. Whatever the reason, however, so many of us are absolutely mortified at the idea of showing our deepest needs to other people, of letting them be known. We have a hard time receiving a compliment. We have a hard time letting others help us, cross the road for us, care for us, bandage our wounds, be tender toward us, render serious aid. And yet, according to Jesus, when we look at this passage a little bit more deeply, being a neighbor involves not only giving help, but also being willing to receive help. And even maybe especially from people who are not like us. So perhaps part of the message in this passage for us this week isn't only to invite us to imagine who we could or should be helping, but also those who might help us if we could give them a chance. And maybe it goes both ways, to our surprise. And maybe these two are actually integrally connected when rightly understood. Perhaps the only way or the best way or the easiest way to see ourselves as the Good Samaritan, which I think we want to do. In other words, the one who is called to give help and to bring healing to those in need. Perhaps the best way to do that or the easiest way to do that or the only way to do that is first of all to recognize how often we have been the traveler left dead on the side of the road. It is only after we have encountered and understood God's radical grace and love for us in Jesus Christ, 
and through other people, all kinds of other people, that we are able to embody and express God's radical grace and love for others. There may be some reciprocity of this thing going both ways for Jesus in this passage. Who is my neighbor? Your neighbor is the one who has mercy on you. And so maybe what's important is not only us giving aid, but also receiving aid and being in the place of brokenness, acknowledging that, recognizing that, and receiving first the radical grace and love of God for us in Jesus. And maybe only then are we able to fully love other people and render aid and be tender. Last Sunday morning we read from John's first letter. God is love. And so God so loved us that he sent us his son. Dear friends, John wrote, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Since God so loved us, If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If and as we live into and by and through God's great love and God's great love for us, that is actually first. John says it himself. This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. And then out of that wellspring of God's love will inevitably flow to others God's grace, God's mercy, His kindness. What is life? We all long for life beyond biology. Do we not? Life is experiencing the radical grace and love of God in Jesus. Living in that love, receiving that love, walking in that love, and out of the overflow of that love, loving one's neighbors, those who are like us, and especially those who are not like us, and allowing God's love to love them, love us, and through us, love them. May God give us, or may we, by God's grace, inherit that eternal life. May this be so. Let's pray. Help us to see ourselves, God, maybe as we have not ordinarily. 
as those who have been kicked to the side of the road and whom you have seen and who have been the recipients of your incredible grace and your mercy and your tenderness in Jesus. And having recognized ourselves in that place and in that person, fill us with your love for that person and for those like that person, however he or she may be, whoever he or she may be. Fill us with your abounding love. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen.